Quick Bible. I want to welcome you if you're visiting us. Uh, you're in the preaching service, and uh, we're just so thankful you came to worship with us this morning. I want to welcome you. Um, today, uh, we are going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. So over the last month, we finished up our summer series in the Psalms with King David, and then we wrapped up our mini-series in Romans 1, and now we're jumping back into Acts where we left off last spring. And we're coming in right at a really neat point. It's right before Stephen's great speech, before the Sanhedrin. And it's also when the opposition and the persecution is heating up in Jerusalem and is ready to explode. And there is someone, we're going to talk about him next week, who's going to be at that, that stoning of Stephen that will kick that off. So we, uh, our task this morning is simple, is to refresh our minds on the first six chapters of the book of Acts, and then we're going to exposit. We're going to go through verses 8 through 15 in Acts 6, and that's going to lay the groundwork for this amazing profile in courage, Stephen, who is the church's first martyr. And that way, next week, we can take up with the whole chapter 7 as one unit. And we can devote our full time to seeing the content of his dramatic defense and also his scathing offense against the leaders of Israel. Now, by way of review, we know that the book of Acts was written by Dr. Luke, and it's the second of two manuscripts that he wrote. The first being, of course, the Gospel of Luke. And they're both written to Theophilus, which means lover of God. But Luke also refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, which may be a clue that he's a Roman official. And this has led many to believe that these two manuscripts, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, were written as court documents or depositions to be presented before a high court like the Sanhedrin. First, to give an eyewitness account of the events of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, but then also to give an eyewitness to the accounts of the events and ministry of the church that Jesus Christ was building in the book of Acts. First of all, we must recognize that the book of Acts is our history. Our history of our beginning as a church. And just as Israel is so fond of their history, and it's preached over and over again through the New Testament of the, the fathers going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then the patriarchs going into Israel as a family, and then emerging for the first time ever as a nation, the nation of Israel, that was Israel's beginning. But this is our beginning. This is the church's beginning, beginning on the day of Pentecost where Jew and Gentile are brought together into one body in Christ, and the church is born. Yet, unlike the entirety of the inspired history of the Old Testament that detailed the dealings of God with the nation of Israel, the church has only one book of inspired history, and that is the book of Acts. Among the 27 books of the New Testament, that's our one book of history. Secondly, we must see the book of Acts as that critical transition between the perfect life of Christ and the Gospels to the perfect theology 
of Christ in the the epistles. How else would we go from the ministry of Jesus, the witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the living gospel, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the Great Commission, and jump all the way into the teaching of the great truths of the gospel of grace preached to those in in Rome or the pagan sinners in Corinth or the legalists in Galatia without the book of Acts. Without the book of Acts, we would never understand the movement and the power of the Great Commission and the great men and women that carry that message to the world. Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. The book of Acts begins with the Great Commission. Mark and Luke's gospels end with the Great Commission and the Ascension. The book of Acts begins with the Great Commission and the Ascension. John's gospel ends with a discussion of the return of Christ, and that's what the book of Acts starts with. So all the questions that are raised at the end of the Gospels are answered in the book of Acts. And chief of those questions, probably the most important question, is by what means does God now build his church and carry out his plan for redemptive history? Well, we're going to find that out as we continue to work through these 28 chapters and within these 33 critical years of the early church that Acts goes through. It's a church whose story is still being written today, right here in Lakewood, Colorado, where today we see turmoil and persecution on our horizon, just as these early brethren did. And surely we would face more persecution if we were actually turning the world upside down as they were. And yet think of what these guys were up against. They were up against the strongest political empire in the world in Rome. They're up against an educated, sophisticated Greek culture that was steeped in paganism. And they were up against the most entrenched legalistic religion in Judaism, one they all grew up in. These were formidable obstacles for a group of ragtag believers that had no money, they had no influence, and they had no history to stand on. And although we're getting this account of the book in the book of Acts from the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, we must remember that the early church was made up of Jewish believers who were throwing off the grave cloths of Judaism and for the first time in their lives finding freedom from sin. And through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're born again. Now, one of the great transitions of the book of Acts is the transition from Judaism to Jesus and also the transition from the law to grace and from the Jewish beginnings in Jerusalem to then go to all the world. The church would expand by coalescing these Jerusalem Jews with the Gentiles into one body of believers who are one in Christ. And Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, would represent the beginning of that shift from the predominantly Greek body to adding in Greek Jews, then half-Jews, then Samaritans, and then us, the Gentiles. But also it's a shift of the church from being centered in Jerusalem to then being centered in Antioch, where, where it becomes its epicenter. But the question we have to ask is where did the church, this early church, Where did they get leaders like Stephen, who are so young in the faith, but they're so bold 
and so fearless that he would not only defend the faith, but he would launch a scathing attack on the Sanhedrin themselves right to their face. Now, as we review the first six chapters of the book of Acts, we're going to look at two amazing developments that absolutely transformed these new believers from doubters and deniers of Christ and turn them into bold, courageous proclaimers of the gospel. These two developments are two threads that we're going to chase down through the first six chapters of the book of Acts to help us review, but also to help us see how these brothers were transformed. The fact that they were transformed is summed up in the two-part description of Stephen in Acts 6. It reads, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So let's look first at the description of Stephen as a man being full of the Holy Spirit, which takes us back to our resurrected Lord during his 40 days of teaching and is giving the apostles while in Galilee the commandment of the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Then the book of Acts opens with Christ telling them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. Then they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the, ends of the earth. Interestingly, when you finish reading the gospel accounts, we're left with the impression that these remaining 11 disciples were confused and somewhat unsure of what had taken place. We see them question our Lord's deity in the upper room, abandon our Lord in the garden, deny our Lord at Caiaphas' house, and they were largely absent at the cross. So we have to ask, why are they so bewildered and shaken? Another good example are the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember how they were unsure about what had happened. So we have to ask, why were they doubters and, and deniers after all that they heard and all that they witnessed? The answer is because Jesus did not fit their messianic image with his suffering, with his death, with his burial, and his resurrection. He didn't fit their paradigm. Yet it's not long into the book of Acts, is it? that we see a radical change in these men. These men were now chomping at the bit to proclaim the truth to the world. And they would literally lay down their lives for the gospel. So we have to ask, what made the change? First, the obvious, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus told them again and again would come. As Jesus states in John 14, not that the Holy Spirit would be with them, but soon the Holy Spirit would indwell them and be in them. It reads, you know him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So significant was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that many believe that the name of the book of Acts should more properly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles since it was the Spirit directing and controlling and empowering the ministry of these new believers. Acts 2 records that seminal moment. It reads, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then then Peter, in verse 17, reminds the gathered crowds of a far future prophecy in Joel, a, a prophecy that would come after the great day of the Lord, the great day of judgment that has not come yet. But he reminds them, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit. And again, Peter acknowledges this coming of the Holy Spirit to believers when addressing the men of Israel in his first sermon. And after these men were cut to the quick, under the conviction of the Lord, from the preaching of Peter of the gospel, he tells them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit is active, emboldening the disciples and active in dwelling new believers as the church expanded. And with church growth comes church persecution. So we see Peter making his defense before Caiaphas and Annas, filled with the Holy Spirit, as verse 8 of chapter 4 reads. Then when they were released and the church regathered, also in chapter 4, It reads, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And just as, just as God promised, after the resurrection, after the ascension, back in chapter 2, it reads, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then verse 33 of chapter 4 adds, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That great grace was the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 5, we see the consequence of testing the Holy Spirit, of testing the Lord with Ananias and Sapphira, with their death. And then let's look at one more in chapter 5. As we chase down this thread of the movement of the Holy Spirit in the early church, We see after being admonished again before the council following their divine prison break for filling Jerusalem with the teaching of Christ, it reads, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Finally, we see Stephen and the other six Hellenists were chosen because of their good repute and being filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 6. 
So clearly this movement of God in sending the Holy Spirit is a game changer for this early church with leaders full of the Holy Spirit. But there's something else. There's something new that, that we see contributing to the emboldening of these disciples and leaders of the church to give up everything for the gospel, to stand boldly before the courts, before councils, before the masses on the temple courts, when only weeks before they did not even understand Christ's sufferings. They didn't understand the cross. They didn't understand the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only weeks before, Jesus would even say to them, O ye of little faith, but not now. So what was it that changed them? We know it was the Holy Spirit, but as our verse indicates, the other description, the other thread that we will chase down from chapter 6 is that Stephen was a man full of faith. But faith strengthened by what? We have to ask. What was it that he and the other disciples were now trusting in? Well, the answer is revealed in their preaching. The disciples themselves give us the answer to what gave them a new foundation of faith by what they were preaching. And it's simply this. Their preaching revealed that they finally figured out that God's plan of all redemption was revealed in the law and the prophets and was being worked out by his hand and his plan through his son, Jesus Christ, perfectly. For the first time, they understood the big picture that Jesus Christ did not come to abolish Judaism, but he was the fulfillment of Judaism. And they understood that the law and Judaism can chase you only as far as the cross and no further. And that Jesus fulfilled perfectly everything the Old Testament was pointing to. And it was based on this new illumination of the Old Testament that the disciples had that aha moment and their faith became unshakable. As the people of the book, we can all relate to that on a small level. When we're reading the Bible, and we come across some amazing connection that we've never seen before. And that excitement that we have when, we, when that happens is that this book is true. And this book is alive. And, and we're amazed that our great God and our, our faith is strengthened, isn't it? But we have to ask, how did these bewildered, confused disciples come to this knowledge? This insight that all the prophecies were falling into place right before their eyes in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, the road to Emmaus is a start. In Luke 24, it reads, And he said to them, the two disciples, O foolish ones, slow to, of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then we had the 40 days of our Lord teaching in his resurrection about the kingdom of God. And then just before his ascension, we again see in Luke 24, Jesus opening their minds to the scripture. Of course, referring to the Old Testament, because that's the only scripture they had. 
It reads in, again in, in Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So with minds open to the scripture, doubt and confusion concerning Jesus Christ as the Messiah is replaced by boldness and euphoria to tell the world. And that is what we see right away, the apostles quoting the Old Testament in their preaching in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, right after Christ's ascension, we see the 11 disciples connecting the prophecies of a betrayer spoken of by David to Judas. And in chapter 2, we see Peter stand up and boldly quote Joel in verse 17. Then in verse 23, as one who has found the keys to the, the mystery of the cross and the resurrection, Peter confidently wraps it up and puts it this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then Peter immediately quotes Psalm 16 concerning the greater David, who would not see decay in a grave, but that God would raise him up. And it says, if the whole Old Testament was coming alive to them with the neon light that pointed to Jesus Christ, and they couldn't wait to tell the world, and many would listen and repent and be baptized, with 3,000 souls being added to the church from Peter's first sermon, the church then grows and comes together as a body. Then in chapter 3, we see Peter and John standing before the men of Israel again with a completely healed, formerly lame beggar. And how does Peter seek to persuade and convict his brethren, his Jewish, believe, Jewish his fellow Jews? By again referencing the Old Testament. It reads, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then Peter, he can't wait to connect all the prophecies of the Jewish Tanakh to the Messiah, stating in verse 18, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The disciples not only found the truth about the past prophecies, they found the truth about the future prophecies of the millennial kingdom, where they will be found in the presence of Jesus Christ as chapter 3 states, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive 
until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter then turns to the unassailable witness. The greatest witness in the mind of any Jew, by quoting Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This Peter, who not many weeks before denied the Lord in public three times, is now a different man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but also a man who, by God's grace, has connected all the dots of God's grand plan of redemption. At this point, he's all in, and he can't wait. His newfound faith is driving him to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. And we see at this stage of the book of Acts, the truth of the gospel being preached by these disciples is truly the power of God for salvation. And that threatened the Sanhedrin, who in chapter 4, in a panic, bring Peter and John before them to question them about the power and the name by which they healed this lame beggar. Because nobody could deny that this lame beggar was healed. Peter responded by going to the intensely messianic Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118, which every Jew knew by heart. They had memorized it. And Peter connects it to Jesus Christ. It reads, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You know, you'd have to believe that even the great Gamaliel could not hold a candle to these early believers with the Holy Spirit, with their minds open to the truth of Scripture, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And these prophecies were at that moment, right before their eyes, falling into place. But this truth was not theirs to keep, but rather for them to be obedient to the commandment, to share it with the world starting in Jerusalem. Peter says in Acts 4, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter got it. The disciples got it. The early church got it. But what was it that they got? That the whole of the Old Testament was opened up to them as if everything they lived through the last three years with Jesus Christ was proving the past, the past prophecies, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ was proving the past. And what was the past? The past was the whole plan laid out in the Old Testament. The five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the 12 books called the History, Joshua to Esther, the five books called the Wisdom, Job to Song of Solomon, the five books of the Major Prophets, Isaiah to Daniel, and the 12 books of the Minor Prophets, Hosea to Malachi. And it's as if God was declaring the end from the beginning, as, as Isaiah 46 records. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. They could now see the decrees of God to accomplish all his purposes. And it would be done through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Peter, after being released by the Sanhedrin, regathered with the church. And again, he quotes an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 2, explaining the opposition that had gathered against Jesus Christ and also the opposition they were facing. So we see them pray and pray Psalm 2. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Then this young church does what we do. When we see some great truth we've never seen before, we glorify God. And that's what these early believers do in the next verse. It states, For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So with hearts and minds open to the Scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit, they got it. They understood the great plan of God, the great decree of God, that the Son of God would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it was all predestined, just as Jesus told them. And they had total faith in God that his Son fulfilled everything. And that is the scarlet thread exemplified in Jesus Christ that runs through every book in the Law and the Prophets. And now was reaching, that same scarlet thread was now reaching into their lives, tying together each and every event they had witnessed and connecting it back to the Old Testament prophecies. They realized all at once that they were now smack dab in the middle of God's redemptive plan for history. So can you imagine the excitement Can you imagine the boldness, the confidence, the hope that they had in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ? Now we can imagine the solid rock of faith that these early believers and brothers and sisters in Christ had. And now we can understand their fearlessness to stand before the Supreme Court of Israel and proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah, whom God sent, that the Sanhedrin themselves killed by hanging on a tree. So after chasing down these two transformations that emboldened these disciples, number one, being full of the Holy Spirit, and number two, being full of faith, these two two transformations would produce preachers and proclaimers of the gospel that would literally change the world. And that brings us back to Stephen, who before he was stoned, just like Peter, just like Paul, as exemplified a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and as his brilliant sermon and his brutal execution makes clear, he stood on that granite truth that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment 
of all the law and all the prophets, and that his entire life came down to this moment, this one speech that would likely end in his death, and he was confident that that too was part of God's redemptive plan. So with that as the introduction and review, let us turn to chapter 6, and let us look at verses 8 through 15. And this will help set the stage for the whole of chapter 7 that we'll take up tomorrow as one, or next week as one unit, God willing. So turn in your Bibles to those last eight verses of chapter 6, and let us stand for the reading of God's Word, which is inspired. It is God-breathed. It reads, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man ceases, never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. You may be seated. These verses summarize the powerful impact of Stephen's ministry. And because of that success he had, his subsequent arrest. This is a pattern we see all throughout the book of Acts, that as the church grows, the persecution grows. And that's exactly what we see in the preceding verse. Look at verse 7. It reads, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And one of those who would continue to increase the word of God in Jerusalem would be Stephen, who would step out as God's chosen servant, going from serving tables to becoming this tour de force as a proclaimer and debater of the gospel in the synagogues. A man, as verse 8 indicates, was also full of grace and power. And although I don't speak Greek, I do love these two words, grace and power, to describe Stephen. They are charis and dunamis. Charis, meaning love, loveliness, joy, or grace and speech. And dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. Dunamis in this context, meaning inherent power or moral power. So what a great combination that Stephen had. He had Sherus and Dunamis. And our text indicates they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So who are these groups that were no match for this Hellenistic Jewish preacher? They were those from the synagogue of the freemen, of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. 
All these groups had their roots in North Africa. And thus they were also Hellenistic Jews, the group which Stephen probably came from. And all, some, some, many believe that it could be as many as five synagogues. The best interpretation is this is just one synagogue. This may have been Stephen's home synagogue. Or it may be one that the disciples had preached in. Because we know from Acts 5 that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. However, these synagogue Jews were no match for a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just Stephen they were disputing, but as the text reads, the Spirit of God in Stephen. Verse 11 indicates the desperation of these defeated Jews that they would secretly and falsely accuse him of slandering Moses and God. There could be no more serious charge than blaspheming Moses and God, a charge punishable by a mandatory death sentence. Verse 12 indicates that just as they'd done with Jesus, they stirred up the highest authorities, which included the Jewish elders, the tribal leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, and they bring Stephen in before them. Then in verse 13, we see even more false testimony brought forth against Stephen, adding that he speaks against the temple and the law, which would be the Mosaic law. This is based on the false charge in verse 14, that they heard him say that Jesus would destroy the temple and that Jesus would change the customs that Moses delivered to them in the Mosaic law. Now, if you're keeping track, there are four charges that Stephen is charged with speaking against. And they are Moses, God, the temple, and the law. Next week, we're going to see Stephen dismantle these charges with surgical precision. And despite the false testimony against him, we see that just as in the synagogues, they would not be able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen is, is speaking. Why? Because the false testimony of man will always shrink in the face of the truth of God. Verse 11 says, we have heard him speak. And verse 14 says, we have heard him say. All these charges are trumped up. Let God be true and every man a liar, as Roman 3 says. Stephen knows these are deceitful men. Surely he knew Jesus' words that we have recorded in John 2, that state, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they remembered the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Post-resurrection, the disciples knew, as Stephen knew, the meaning of these words that he spoke of his resurrection. Also, the temple to a born-again believer was as dead as the religion it trafficked in. The temple was not obsolete, was now obsolete, just as Judaism was now obsolete as it is today. It died at the cross. Jesus told the woman at the well, God is spirit and shall be worshipped in spirit and truth not on mountains, not in temples. Now we're seeing, even before Stephen launches into his defense, the lines being drawn so clearly. 
On one side, the wicked leaders of Israel, they're doing what they've been doing for hundreds of years. And that is to deny and kill the prophets that God sends to bring truth to his people. On the other side, we see Stephen portrayed very differently. Verse 15 records, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The council was observing the peace of a believer who was filled with the Holy Spirit and full of faith, full of trust in God. And a peace that is otherworldly. It's not available in this human realm that only Jesus could give. Jesus said, peace I give you, not as the world gives. And that's the peace that he had. And it's a peace that remains, as Isaiah 26 reads, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is Stephen standing before them, a man filled with peace and grace, a man filled with joy and loveliness with the face of an angel. This could indicate young age. Ecclesiastes may help us here. It records, who is the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I've never seen the face of an angel, but apparently they have a look that conveys wisdom and peace and joy. But what the Sanhedrin doesn't see, they don't see the dunamis, do they? The dynamite of Stephen that will manifest in a, itself in a speech so powerful that it destroys the opposition so convincingly that it can only be answered with violence in the brutal taking of Stephen's life. This is a verbal defeat that we'll look at next week that's so convincing and so crushing that there would be no Gamaliel to step in and plead for peace and patience, but rather the Sanhedrin as we'll see next week, would respond with grinding of teeth, crying out loud, stopping their ears, rushing together at him, casting him out of town and stoning him. This is the murderous response of prideful men who just realized they were on trial and they were the ones pronounced guilty by a godly man who was full of the Spirit and full of faith in God. Because Stephen knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That was true. Truth that he was willing and would give his life for. Stephen's faith reminds us of the faith of Abraham on Mount Moriah. Faith so strong he was willing to plunge a knife into his only son because he had total faith in God. He had total faith in his plan. He had total faith in his promise to make him the father of of the multitudes. Stephen similarly had this unshakable faith to speak the truth as he'd never spoken it before, not knowing what might befall him. Both Abraham and Stephen trusted God in their toughest test, in their darkest hour. Both were obedient and did not question the plan of God, even though they didn't have all the answers, because both had complete faith in a sovereign God who did have all the answers. When death lingered at the door, the knife in the hand of Abraham, hovering above the body 
of Isaac, the stones in the hands of the executors hovering above Stephen in the pit. Yet both looked only to God for deliverance. As believers, we don't know what storms are brewing on our horizon, but God knows. We don't know if we'll lose our jobs, but God knows. We don't know if this church is going to get locked down, but God knows. We don't know if this depraved society will make us targets, but God knows. And we don't know if we'll lose our lives like Stephen due to our faith, but God knows. We don't have to have all the answers. We just need to have faith in the one who does have all the answers. Like Stephen, we are believers full of the Holy Spirit. And we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is building our faith as believers. But if you are not a believer this morning, if you have not put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as Stephen did, as Peter did, then please hear me. If you have ears to hear, you couldn't be in a better place. Repent of your sins and turn from them and turn in faith to Jesus Christ to save your soul. But if you don't have ears to hear this morning, you couldn't be in a worse place because to be exposed to the gospel and reject it will bring a greater condemnation and a greater wrath. There's a story about Russian soldiers who burst into a prayer meeting armed and they warned anyone who's not a Christian clear out the back. It was only then that these soldiers would put down their weapons, take a seat and open their Bibles. They would explain we couldn't take a chance on any false converts turning us in. The question we have to ask is would we clear out the back? at the face of danger or even death? Or would we remain seated, feet planted, because we know in whom we believe? We know in whom we worship. That moment of truth for us Christians in this society may not, may not be too far off. But I'm pretty sure I know what Abraham and Stephen and Peter would do. Stephen, as we'll see next week, would step before certain death, a firing squad of sorts, he knew the truth that he was going to bring would bring down the house on him like Samson. But he was strengthened by the Holy Spirit. He was strengthened by his faith in God and his faith in the word of God that he knew was in the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus Christ. So let us pray as we have the music team we hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 